Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. So, yeah, Tony Capon, uh, Professor of Planetary Health here at the University of Sydney, and uh, I direct the Planetary Health Platform. We're uh, jointly hosting this evening's Sydney Ideas event with the Sydney Environment Institute. And uh, so tonight we're going to have a lively conversation. Uh, We've got uh, uh, four other great uh, contributors to the evening. And what I'd like to do at this point is just run you very quickly uh, through their backgrounds before uh, we open up to hear from them. So uh, John MacArthur, who's a senior fellow uh, with the Brookings Institution and a senior advisor with the UN Foundation and indeed also a board governor with the IDRC in Canada. Uh, Alana Mann, who's local, uh, chair of the Department of Media and Communications here at the University of Sydney, and her work aims to promote citizen engagement, participation, and collective action on food systems. Patricia Garcia, who's also here at the university, affiliated with Peace and Conflict Studies, Additionally, uh, Patricia, she's a highly respected uh, humanitarian and human rights advocate. And uh, finally, Sam Moston, who also has a connection with the University of Sydney, which is terrific to welcome her back tonight. Uh, She's currently has a portfolio of work relevant to sustainable development. Uh, She's a non-executive director with a number of major companies, including Mervac, Transurban, and Virgin Australia. And she's the chair of City Australia. But she's got a diverse... uh, range of interests, including um, Australian football, and uh, she's been a director uh, with uh, the Australian Football League and helped uh, to bring about uh, women's Australian football as one of her things. So now it's uh, my pleasure to pass over to John. Uh, Let's welcome John uh, to open up the conversation. Thank you, Tony. I'd like to start by asking a question. I'd like to ask each of you to just take a moment to reflect and think about the world as a world. And if you were to give the world a score, how's the world doing? And if you had to pick a number between zero and 10, If 10 is awesome, perfect, Nirvana is here. Zero is we're about to fall off a cliff any second. And five is somewhere in between. Just with your mind's eye, what score would you give the world right now in your gut? Five, zero, three. Just to show what number did you come up with out of curiosity? Everyone, if you're up for it, great. I see six, seven, four, one, three, five. Any nines or tens? Okay. Any two or below? Okay, so you can all decide who you go to the bar with afterwards based on this. Now I want you to grab the person next to you. 
And I want you just to take 30 seconds to say, what do you think is the single biggest problem the world needs to solve? Just the single biggest problem. Take 30 seconds, explain it to that person next to you, or describe it, what is it? Go. So we have water, human rights, climate, energy, I'll say uh, environmental loss, inequality, globalization, jobs, religion, war, peace, attitude, sustainability of populations, and people who aren't very nice. Okay. Now, I have another question. Geopolitics. I'm sure there's a couple others that might not have come up. What you just spent three years, three minutes on is what the world spent three years on. Okay. And they came up with these things, the Sustainable Development Goals. Now, there are a couple hundred people in this room. There are 193 countries in the world, each of which had a vote. And interestingly, pretty much everything you said is in here somewhere. Energy, inequality, peace, justice, and institutions, partnership, people ability to work together, life on land. No one mentioned life below water. I guess the oceans don't matter. No one said it. It's only 70% of the planet. Let it go. Well, obviously that's facetious, but there's a point in that. Because I asked you, what's the single biggest thing? How come you came up with at least 15 different answers? Which one do you use right? Which one are you wrong? It's a silly question. In a world of seven and a half billion people, if everyone gave one answer, we'd have, uh, uh, if everyone gave one of these, we'd have 400 million people thinking each of those is the most important thing. It's a lot of people, a lot of perspectives. But that's not how we're used to thinking about these conversations. We're used to saying, well, what's the priority? What's the single biggest thing? And I don't think that's quite right. Now, these goals were set through this huge process. Imagine if I had asked this room to agree on the most important thing, how long that would take you. Just this room. <laughs> There's an optimist in every room, it's good. What if there were 193 representatives with millions of people voicing their preferences around the world in the most inclusive process the world's ever seen? Pretty hard to come up with this. But on the day this was finalized, I looked it up afterwards, it was Sunday, August the 2nd, 2015. The governments agreed. They drew a line under it, this is it. And I called home. My mother, who lives back in Vancouver where I grew up, retired, like many of our parents, uh, doesn't totally know how I spend my days, but very supportive. And I said to her, Mom, you know, the first of these goals is the one I had spent the most time on. It's the end of extreme poverty by 2030, so-called dollar a day to end it by 2030. I said, you know those goals I've been talking about, Mom? end of extreme poverty, the world agreed to do that today. It's like, wow, that's impressive. I said, yeah, it is. It's kind of cool, actually. It was emotional for many of us who've been involved. But then in the back of my mind, I said, oh my gosh, there's only one problem with these goals. She said, what's that? I said, there's 17 of them. I don't know how to explain them. 
And there'd been a huge debate. Should we have five? Should we have 10? Should we have eight? Should, what's the right, 12, what's the right number? And my mom said, 17, that's a great number. I was like, well, you're the first person to say that. So tell me, mom, why is 17 a great number? She said, sounds like they didn't fake it. The world's complicated. Huh. Then she afterwards said, if they'd give me some Letterman-style top 10, I probably wouldn't have believed them. Huh, interesting. So a week later, I'm at the World Economic Forum in Geneva, talking to 500 people, trying to explain these goals very quickly. Poverty's going like this, climate's going like that, and I ad-libbed this thing about my mom. <laughs> what does everyone come up to me for the next three days saying? I love these goals. It's like your mom said, the world's complicated. And the thing I care about is in there. My issue is there. And that actually changed the way I think about this as we think about the goals. Okay, so we've got these goals. The world agreed to them for 2030. But what's going on? There is a backdrop, there is a world. Now this is on the vertical axis, sorry if it's a little hard to read, this is the number of billions of people living in the so-called global middle class. These are people, colleague, uh, my colleague Homi Cross did this, people who make around 11 to $110 a day, purchasing power parity. Depending on when you think the world started, everyone's got their view, we had the first billion people living in that income group in 1979. We had the second billion people around 2006. By 2015, we were up to 3 billion people in the global middle class. Massive change. This is progress. This is the good side of globalization. One of the big things, and I would argue the single biggest thing happening in the world, the backdrop to all of our lives, and I think people in Sydney and people in Vancouver, where I'm from, and people in many cities around the Pacific are feeling it, is the number is growing very, very fast and it's about to get a lot, lot bigger. So as of probably around last fall, for the first time in history, we're a majority middle-class world. That's never happened before. That's people coming out of poverty. That's the rise of consumers. That's the rise of Asia. It's China and the rest of Asia. This is, I would argue, the central driver of our politics our economics, and our environment. Now, the flip side is, this is monthly mean carbon dioxide emission. All these new people who are active in the world economy and having a better life, we have a problem that every new unit of economic progress is still cranking out a corresponding unit of environmental problem. And one of the things we have to do when it's in these goals is to decouple those lines so that these lines don't look the same anymore, but they still do. So within all of this, though, this big, 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 big thing of complexity, all these issues for all these people in all these places in the world, I would argue there's one central driver to this, and it's no one left behind. And as Tony said very rightly, when we talk about environment, that means not leaving behind future generations either. 
And when the diplomats came to the final agreement in these goals in 2015, they, that was the phrase that kept coming up again and again and again. We will fight for no one left behind. I would also argue that in many of the advanced economies, where we saw a lot of political explosions in 2015, 2016, even 2017, that's a product of a lot of people feeling left behind and starting to complain about it. And when a lot of people feel left behind, it makes it hard for even countries to work together. And so we asked the question, well, how do you think about, it's a paper we wrote last year, how do you think about not just the general notion of no one left behind, but specific people getting left behind in specific places with specific problems? And so he said, let's at least think this through. How's the world doing on different issues? So this, just to explain, the full bar on each of these is 100% of what the world promised to do by 2030. And the green is the share that the world's on track to deliver by 2030. So the top of this is under five child mortality. And on current trajectory, business as usual, the world will go more than halfway on what it's promised. It's cup a little more than half full. But on maternal mortality, it's less than half full. And on others like non-communicable disease, suicide, homicide, traffic deaths, it's not going very far at all. That's the share of people who are about to get left behind unless we do better. Now you can actually count those people. Those are people who will live or die if they're left behind or not. And it works out to about 44 million human beings who will lose their lives if we don't do better, if we don't do what we promised. About 29 million are non-communicable diseases, about 9 million are children, about 1 million plus on the, on the other sources of major mortality. And you can actually say, where are those people? You can also look, and I won't ask you to read this all, but these are issues of basic needs. Just to give a sense of the colors, you have a huge range at the top is hepatitis B, malaria, access to electricity, extreme poverty. We're on track to get down to about 400 million people by 2030, which in some ways is great. It's only 5% of the world. In other case, in other ways, it's 400 million people when we said we were gonna end it. It's not good enough. And we see gender, issues of food not going so well. And then you see these issues, we're actually going in the wrong direction. Air pollution, mortality augmenting air pollution, going in the wrong direction. Children overweight, the obesity epidemic around the world, going in the wrong direction in pretty much every country on the planet. So we're not doing it very well. And you can start to think about, just to give a couple examples, well, where are these people? This is extreme poverty. This is the graph of if we keep going as we're going, about 450 million people in extreme poverty in 2030, and around half of them will be in five countries. It's not abstract. The single biggest number will be in Nigeria. We've grown up in a world where India was the largest number of extremely poor people, many of us. That's over now, as of probably this year. Nigeria is the place where most of the lives are affected for extreme poverty. Oh. You can also look at the other end of the spectrum. This is children overweight. 
This is where they are in the top five countries are a lot of the big countries, including United States. This is the global epidemic of non-communicable diseases. This is a cost that will last for centuries. So we can start to get much more specific about who's getting left behind. And it's not just problems over there. It's problems right here, too. So what about Australia? I am not the expert on Australia. <laughs> we have people who will speak to that with much more insight and eloquence than me. But I am from Canada, and I've thought a lot about this in my context, my country. On the left, for those of you who are not steeped in Canadian politics, shocking, I know. Can, on the left is Stephen Harper, who was the conservative prime minister until the fall of 2015. On the right is someone not many people recognize, Justin Trudeau, who is the, in Canadian terms, left-wing liberal, left-of-center prime minister, like the labor equivalent. And they both are supporters of the Sustainable Development Goals. They came to fruition under the Harper government, and they've been carried forward under the Trudeau government. Very important. It's not a political issue. And importantly, Prime Minister Trudeau, about a year and a half ago, in his statement at the General Assembly, where he drew specific attention to indigenous people in the process of reconciliation in Canada, said these goals are as meaningful in Canada as they are anywhere else in the world. And they're committing to implement them at home and abroad. I've spent a lot of time, we can get into it later, on what that actually means in Canada. But one of the things we saw in doing a study on how Canada's doing is that even Canada, in our first pass at this, is not yet wholly on track for any of the goals. Because on each issue, there's some community of some size getting left behind. In some cases, that's 2% of the population, 1% to 2% doesn't have access to safe drinking water. It's especially in, prevalent in indigenous communities. On others, there's 10 to 12% that are hungry, chronically food insecure, that's 3 to 4 million people. On others, there's issues of access to basic literacy and numeracy, that might be as much as uh, seven or more million people that don't have the basic skills required to function in the modern economy. So this is as riveting as at home, at home as an issue of people getting left behind as it is anywhere else in the world. Now Australia, the group SDG Transforming Australia, the coalition, will explain their work on this, I hope, <laughs> which I highly uh, applaud and admire. And this is a, a spin wheel of how, how everyone's doing, or how Australia's doing on each of these issues, each of the 17. And you see the, the human issues are on the top right, doing okay, health and so forth. The economic issues, inequality, a little bit mixed. The environment issues over here, climate, just like in Canada, not so good. So it's a mixed story, even here. But the biggest point of this, I think, is who has a role. And that's why I'm so honored to be here at this university and have this public conversation. Because the biggest single mistake we can make, in my view, is to wait on government. Governments have a crucial role to play. There's an election happening in this country, likely very soon. And the argument should not be about whether to cut poverty, whether to uh, 
tackle the water issue, whether to tackle the climate issue. The politics are about how to tackle. And if everyone agrees on where we're trying to go, then it's the public, first of all, that can raise the debate on how are we going to get there, official X. I'm holding you accountable as my representative. But it doesn't stop there. In fact, usually, in my experience, politicians take their ideas from someone else. Little secret. They don't write all their own papers. They often turn to universities. Places like University of Sydney, Monash has been a leader. And just to give an example of places around the world, the Association of Public and Land Grant Universities in the uh, United States has taken on commitments around the Sustainable Development Goals. The International uh, Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in Vienna has taken on these goals. The scientific community has a crucial role to play, especially on the problems we don't yet know how to solve. The journals have a crucial role to play too. This is one of the things that uh, I've looked at a lot. Arguably the biggest area of breakthrough in the past 20 years internationally is global health. More at least 20 million, if not 30 million more people are alive today than would have if previous trends had continued. The fights on how to do that took place week in, week out in journals. And the health journals like BMJ, the former British Medical Journal, and The Lancet were crucial. And World Development, which is a major social science journal, has now become crucial too. Philanthropy matters. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is playing a crucial role. The Rockefeller Foundation is playing a crucial role. But we're also seeing in places like Canada, the Community Foundations of Canada, the umbrella of all the community foundations across the country, have taken on the goals as their organizing principle for connecting local, national, and international efforts. Cities around the world are now taking on the goals. New York City last year was the first city to present, in the UN jargon, there's something called a voluntary national review. Australia recently did one. New York presented the first voluntary local review on how it's doing. And now, cities like Los Angeles, Helsinki, Yokohama, and uh, Durban in South Africa have committed to do the same. And there's a whole cities alliance taking shape on how cities implement the goals, and I know Sydney's had some conversations on this as well. And business matters as much as anything. Again, we have people here who can speak with great eloquence to that. This is just some of the, both the institutional investors like Aviva, Temasek, the Singaporean Pension Fund, CalPERS, the California Pension Fund, Ericsson Unilever. Many, many companies are starting to say, how does this relate to what I do? And we need them to. We are not going to solve the global obesity epidemic without the private sector. Because most of us like buying our food at the store rather than from the government, for good reason. So we need to think through how all this fits together. So in Canadian terms, we've referenced these goals as a North Star. Where I come from, that means wherever you stand, we all see the same place in terms of where we're trying to go. Here, we have the Southern Cross as a reference point to help us get our bearings. 
Now, it's a little murky out there sometimes when we look at the sky to find the Southern Cross, but it's always there. And that's how I see these goals. They're a way for us to get on the same page, literally and figuratively, as to where we're trying to go. And so ultimately, yes, these are the sustainable development goals, but they're only words. We will only achieve them in our communities, in our countries, and in the world when we consider them shared development goals. And that's why I'm happy to be with you here today to figure out how to do that. Thank you very much. Uh, in this phase of the evening, what I'd like to now do is open up to our other speakers and first uh, to hear from Alana. Some reflections. Thanks, Alana. Thanks, Tony, and thanks, John. Uh, it's such a pleasure to speak after such a motivating presentation that actually really is a wonderful segue to what I wanted to talk about, which is a really good example of thinking about how to tackle exactly what you said, which is looking at a task so daunting on a global scale. How do we actually focus on the specifics? Specific people in specific places with specific problems. And I want to talk briefly about a project that does that in the city of Sydney that we're working with the city of Sydney to do the Sydney Environment Institute uh, with the support of the university and in a partnership with TAFE New South Wales as well, is looking at how we can address one specific problem that is quite hidden, I would say, in Sydney as a relatively, well, very affluent city for some, which is food insecurity. And in addressing food security, the relational nature of the SDGs becomes really apparent because food insecurity is very complex and it is actually an indicator of a lot of the other goals themselves, things the goals are addressing, such as challenges to address inequality, to provide a living wage, to actually provide employment pathways through education, so the project that we're working on, which is actually also drawing on translocal um, examples from Food Lab Detroit, is actually a food business incubator. What we are doing is identifying people who are food insecure in Sydney and working with agencies already tackling this problem to provide people with a pathway to employment and possibly starting their own food enterprise. And you may think, well, where are these, where are these hungry people? But in, a f in actuality, the wellbeing survey that the City of Sydney conducted revealed that about 8.5% of people who live in the LGA, in the centre of Sydney, are actually food insecure. That's about 17,000 people on our doorstep. And working at the University of Sydney, which is such a privilege. It, it shocks me every day that people who are our neighbours experience some of these problems. And a lot of it's due to the fact that we live in one of the most expensive cities in the world, not unlike Vancouver, where you come from, John. So tackling these issues, 
we feel is only possible through some of the cooperation that you flagged on that last slide, which is working across institutions, working on a local scale, sharing knowledge between countries, and a lot of our work on food insecurity in Sydney is also informed by the Milan Food Policy Pact, which is an agreement that involves about 170 cities at the moment who are collaboratively looking at how we do reduce inequalities within cities and also not forget that rural populations are similarly impoverished. And food insecurity in rural Australia is also a significant problem that we need to address. So thinking about who's being left behind brings my mind immediately to the drought mm. in Australia, but it also brings my attention to the people who do not participate in our economy. And I think that the rebuilding of a very vibrant, local, community-based economy, certainly in addressing the problem I'm talking about, food security, is um, one of the ways that we can tackle this huge problem. So now over to Patricia. Thank you. Um, I'd just uh, perhaps like to just start, uh, I'd like to just talk a little bit about particularly the role of universities um, and uh, with my work uh, with the United Nations Association of Australia, I've also had the opportunity to speak at other universities other than uh, Sydney University here uh, about um, the importance about to accelerate the implementation of SDGs. Um, I'd like to say that there's uh, uh, less than 5,000 days uh, until 2030, and that's not a long time. And if we are going to be in a position to achieve these SDGs, um, with Australia's um, uh, global performance um, um, on the SDGs, uh, it has declined um, every year since 2015, and I think we started off at um, 17th position on the SDG Index Dashboard Report, and now 2018, 2019, we have dropped down to 37th position. So um, uh, Australia has not really been performing very well on the SDGs as a whole, and we really need to do a lot more and we need to step up um, our efforts. And with the universities, um, I think there's a very important role as universities have been able to demonstrate um, in taking a lead role mm. in implementing the SDGs and particularly in the area of um, evidence and data collection, improvement of the metrics for uh, the SDGs <coughs> and also reporting and communicating um, the SDGs, uh, including minimising the reporting burdens for private sector and business. I also believe that the universities can um, ensure that there's sufficient um, trained staff uh, to undertake work on the SDGs, um, transform curricula and pedagogy to, uh, uh, towards a, a sustainable development perspective. We could also be in a position to understand that SDGs involves sustainability and resilience thinking. It's not a business as usual approach uh, and it involves a multidisciplinary and transdisciplinary um, approach 
that's suited to the complex sustainable development issues that we're dealing with here, and also the integrated nature of sustainable development goals. I also think that we need to enact um, sustainable measures um, across all campus operations at that level. Um, what's the university's waste policy? What's the university's policy on energy, on water? Um, the gender, uh, how are we narrowing or closing the gender pay gap and uh, conditions of academic staff, for example? Uh, and one of the um, suggestions I've been making when I speak to um, students and academic staff at the university is that we should have a local SDG hub in every university. And that's to bring academics, staff, students and um, related um, organisations working to be able to incorporate the SDGs in a business model, in your research, in your curricula or in the campus life. Students have a really strong interest in sustainable development and I, I really believe that they're very interested in studying sustainable development courses and to be able to develop the necessary skills um, for a, a, a career uh, in a world where SDGs are already embedded in the workplace. So this is why the universities have such a critical role to play in the area of uh, um, education, training, research and data collection, as well as um, operational and community engagement within the universities. In my role with UNAA, uh, I uh, wrote to the vice-chancellors of 30 Australian universities, asking them to uh, commit to the uh, landmark universe, university commitment to implement the SDGs, which was an initiative of the SDSN, the Sustainable Development Solutions Network, uh, Asia uh, Pacific Network, which is based at Monash University. So far, 10 Australian universities have actually signed this commitment to implement the SDGs, and uh, there are about 43 Australian universities, so there's still a lot of universities who still have to do, I think, a lot more work to get the university to commit on a whole mm. of university approach mm. to support the SDGs. And um, many of you who probably know that rankings often have a big influence on universities. And the Times Higher Education ranking system um, developed a new global ranking uh, system, a, a new global ranking that aims to measure um, universities' um, uh, success um, that delivers on the SDGs. And that's been quite a recent um, development. So um, I think for universities who are very influenced by rankings, um, most now um, will be having to look at how universities are actually um, delivering and performing on the SDGs. I'd like to just also just talk a little bit about my work with the UNAA and uh, mentioning that um, John mentioned uh, previously that because Australia overall's performance hasn't been uh, too good, one of the, um, the voluntary national report um, um, comments um, was that 
the voluntary national report that Australia presented in July last year uh, uh, was criticised for having um, very little data on how Australia is performing on implementing the SDGs. And uh, also, um, we don't have a national plan. We don't have a national communication strategy. Um, there's been uh, very, what um, UNAA, UNAA considers, um, little, um, very um, limited political leadership, particularly from the federal government. And many of you may have heard that last year there was a Senate committee inquiry into the implementation of the SDGs. And the report um, was brought down last month, and that report contains 18 recommendations. Um, and uh, uh, one of the uh, positive, um, uh, I think, uh, news about this um, Senate report is that the recommendations actually have um, included recommending that the Australian government does develop uh, and implement a national plan, does develop and implement a national communication strategy, also um, to support a secretariat at the um, national government, uh, at the federal government level, to make sure that they mainstream the SDGs across all uh, government departments into their policies and planning, national planning and budgeting processes, and also institutional arrangements to be able to coordinate the SDGs not only at federal level, but federal, state and local level, mm. and to set up an intergovernmental um, uh, group that will be a reference group working with the public and private sector. That includes business sector, civil society, academia and scientific communities. So this um, recent uh, Senate uh, report on the SDGs has been welcome news in having uh, now uh, some, uh, hopefully, whichever government will be coming into, into uh, power um, after our election, hopefully these recommendations will be positively accepted. But I still think we need to, all of us, to be able to understand that um, the SDGs is not just about targets and, and indicators, it's primarily about people. And for me, uh, the concept and the, the key principle of SDGs, uh, because the, the SDGs are universal, and the key principle for me is the principle of leave no one behind. We need to make sure that that's first and foremost um, uh, the key principle that underlies many of the areas in which we have to deal with, with communicating the SDGs or dealing with the data, dealing with the reporting. That people, particularly empowering people for inclusion and equality is the key principle underlying the SDGs. I think you made some very important comments and challenges for the university community, which is mm. terrific. Absolutely. Can yeah. you hear me without this? Yes. Yeah. So over to you, Sam. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was so delighted uh, that John opened with a very personal story about his conversation with his mother in August 2015. About a month later, I was fortunate enough to be with the Australian delegation in the United Nations General Assembly 
um, September 2015 for the gaveling of the SDGs. I was there as part of the Australian government's delegation representing uh, civil society and business alongside the uh, Foreign Affairs Minister, Julie Bishop, and the Minister of the, uh, Australia's Ambassador for Women and Girls, Natasha Stockter-Spoyer, together with the UN, our, our UN Ambassador, Gillian Bird. So we were an all-women team sitting there representing Australia, which was a nice touch. Um, and I learnt in that moment something that John was hinting at about just how extraordinary it was to bring together these 17 goals. And it was that Australian bureaucrats, Australian officials in foreign affairs had played a remarkable role in the development of some of the most key goals, particularly peace and security. Our officials had worked very much with Timor-Leste to promote goal um, 16 for peace and security. And it was Australian officials who ensured that every goal had a componentry around disability included in the goal. And so I sat there in the General Assembly feeling very proud to be an Australian. I felt that our governments and our officials had done an enormous amount of work to bring us to those goals. And just as the, the, um, the goals were being gaveled, the, uh, the head of the assembly on the day called on Malala Yousafzai, who'll be known to all of you, I'm sure, as, as one of the world's greatest advocates for women's education and women's empowerment. Um, and Malala was given a chance to speak to the General Assembly from a balcony overlooking the, um, the General Assembly. And she was there with representatives, youth representatives of all of the countries, the 169... 193. 193, I'm sorry, countries that had signed. So she was standing up there as one of 193 young people. And I will never forget the moment when she tried to speak and she looked down on the operations of the UN General Assembly, a place that we probably talk about as if it's a place of rare, a rarefied atmosphere where big things are done. And that is true. But this was a landscape that she looked down on that I suddenly realised was the old world. It was a lot of men, it was a lot of middle-aged men, and a lot of people not stopping to appreciate the moment, and a lot of talking in the moment when Malala was going to speak mm -hmm. on behalf of the youth of those countries. And she just called them to account. She just called out and said, if you don't listen to young people around the world, the goals are unachievable. These goals are for us. We've seen this in the climate strikes in recent weeks about the house is on fire. She was saying that to a group of people who didn't stop to listen to what was actually behind these goals. And for me, it was the reminder, as everyone has said, that these goals are about action and people, not just about targets and words. But the challenge for us that uh, Tony and I have learnt very deeply through being involved in something called the National Sustainability Council, which does actually hold our government to account on these goals, is that we have a huge amount of work to do. Mm. Um, Tony and I, uh, on this group, created a, um, a document called Transforming Australia. You can just put that into your search engine and have a look at the material. John referred to it and referred to our 6.5 average over all the goals. And I'd encourage you to have a look at that. I've only got a couple of minutes to speak, but where you can go on the Transforming Australia website, you can find out what good people have done as volunteers mm. to assess how Australia is tracking against those goals. And when I look at it, I feel like, I feel as if um, I understand now what Malala was feeling when she looked out on a group of national leaders all still behaving as if nothing had changed. Because for Australia, we've had 27 years of uninterrupted economic growth of a kind. We could debate how sustainable that growth has been, but on an, environment, on an economic model, that's been 27 years of unbroken growth. But we've had incredibly low investment in research and development. We don't invest in the future. We don't invest in research the way strong nations should and do. 
We have some of the highest tertiary qualifications in the world, yet we have some of the most persistently high income inequality statistics and a growing wealth inequality statistic, mm -hmm. some of the worst in the world. We have some of the worst issues around gender equality, despite the fact that we would think of ourselves as women, and the, the women in this audience would feel that we live in a place that should be one of the easiest countries in the wor world to achieve gender equality, and yet we have some uh, persistent gender pay gaps, we have persistent problems of women's representations in our governments, and we have an appalling record on violence against women, where mm. one woman in this country is murdered every week by a current or former intimate partner. They're staggering figures to think about when you think then against the backdrop of the 27 years of unbroken economic growth and the opportunities we have and the fact that we were a lead player in developing the goals. So the uh, Transforming Australia group um, has been led by a group of volunteers but backed by university. So uh, Tony's role from Sydney University and the team at Monash Sustainable Development Institute, led by John Thwaites, the former Deputy Premier of Victoria, who's been tireless mm -hmm. in his work, um, have come up with the themes that we recommend that Australia must get on with. These are kind of moonshot or missions that we think Australia must do to transform the country, not just to meet the goals, but to actually play our part in, in building a sustainable country. And they're very, they're very um, easy things we think to describe. Inclusive growth, proper health and well-being, clean energy and industry, a sustainable food, land and oceans program, a plan for our sustainable cities, and a, um, a proper go at education and digital, the digital economy and the digital future. And with those six thematics that pick up all of the goals, we believe that there is an opportunity for us to do well. Um, but on current, on current experience, we know that our federal government doesn't want to talk about this. Mm. Neither side of, of the political equation actually uses this language. And yet, as you heard from John at the very beginning, <laughs> it is the language of our community. You identified nearly every one of the 17 goals. and it, my big question for, for our, our so-called political leadership is why the most natural set of goals that could be used as a platform for our future is so terrifying for the political class. Because elsewhere in our economy, we're seeing these goals turned into a really optimistic sense of our future. Um, most Australian large businesses now use the SDGs to do their integrated reporting to their shareholders and to their customers and to their staff on how we're going. Universities are moving, civil society has moved, local government has moved, state governments to varying degrees is moving. But there's a persistence in our federal government about not wanting to talk about this, uh, which is why nights like tonight are so important because the power for federal governments to get on board with this lies with us in the way we ask them to lead on these topics. So I'll, I'll leave it with that, um, other than to say, we can, we can dig deeper into the, the scores for Australia, um, but it's, I, I feel like we're looking at the, the General Assembly floor, as Malala did, and saying, what on earth are we doing? We're wasting time. We have, uh, we have very few years left to 2030, and we can't squander anymore. I'd just like uh, to go across the panel and pose that question of the night, uh, is Australia on track? And so it's just a, a very quick snapshot and uh, just uh, a minute or less uh, from everybody, just a key message there. So uh, beginning here. Thanks very much, Alana. It's just an easy question, isn't it, Tony? <laughs> I think there are pockets of disadvantage in every city and town and community in Australia. So I have to say no, because John's point struck me too. When, when you mentioned 
that Canada felt like they weren't on track because um, there were still people being left behind, I would have to say that we, until we have the political will, people will continue to be left behind because, because what concerns me is the power is located in places where these deprivations are not visible. Uh, and I'll say no, because no society is yet wholly on track. But I want to be very clear that that's not a negative statement. I want to, because a lot of people hear that say, oh, well, then maybe it's too hard to try. The point is, we all know that we all need to do better. And so business as usual, whatever that means in the day uh, we live in, <laughs> isn't good enough. And so these goals, if they're seen, and going to Sam's point, if they're seen as some mandate that you just have to do, you know, that's kind of an icky feeling of compliance. Whereas if they're seen as a tool to help achieve what everyone here said they care about and what most politicians actually care about, then that's actually a source of excitement. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to understand that, you know, no, we're not doing well enough because we need to do better, but this gives us a way to have a very clear conversation on what better means. And it's not good enough for societies to succeed on average. They have to succeed mm -hmm. for everyone. And it's not good enough to have a model of economic development that won't work 50 years from now, because it's got to work then, too. And so we just need to find the ways of better and make that specific rather than abstract. Yeah. Thanks. I'd also um, support the previous two speakers and say that I also don't believe um, Australia's on track. And uh, just with the previous comments I made, um, the performance really needs, we need to accelerate uh, and do a lot more. And perhaps uh, one of the um, areas is that, that where we need to be able is to communicate the language of the SDG framework um, in, a, in a language that uh, ordinary um, citizens can understand. Um, I feel that sometimes the, the um, framework um, has been uh, a, a difficult sell with media and the public generally. <laughs> um, just uh, travelling around Australia talking about SDGs and perhaps this is where we need to have um, important, uh, I think, uh, focus on um, how we can communicate uh, the SDGs in a way that people feel and create an enabling environment so that this will generate participation from all people, particularly women and young people, and also um, the focus on partnerships. And this is a collaborative effort. And what is good that traveling in other countries where I've been speaking on SDGs, the SDG framework is wonderful now because now um, governments can use the SDG framework as a common language. And that's why the universal, the global um, collaborative framework provides that common language and, and also shared values. Because the 17 SDG goal, goals, as many of you can see, are actually um, underpinned by human rights norms and standards. And therefore, we have a common language that we can talk to with other governments. And so this is one of the um, important aspects of how we can communicate this framework mm -hmm. as a way to improve um, um, our performance.
And Sam. So I'll go to the data <laughs> and let you know that on our assessment, 35% uh, of the goals in all their forms are on track in Australia. That's 35% with less than, well, about 10 years to go. So 24% um, are way off track and about 40% either are on the way or need improvement or need a major breakthrough to then push into being on track. And if you look at where we are very much on track, it really is in health and well-being. We do outstandingly well on the improvements in health and well-being outcomes for citizens of this country, other than those who are left behind. So there's a 21% gap, and that would probably sit in many of the people we could talk about that miss out on good health and well-being in this country. And we're very high on quality education, extraordinarily high. Um, we do have some, some gaps there, but there are two leading goals. I think what's interesting to look at, where are we doing really badly? What are the two worst goals? And it won't surprise you, it's reduced, it's trying to reduce inequality, so we are very bad on the inequality measurements, and we are very, very bad on climate change. Yeah. That is our worst score. It's one of our worst scores on climate change. Um, the, the combined, so 50% is way off track. 25% um, needs a breakthrough, and 25% needs direct, dramatic improvement. There's no positive, real positive story against these criteria about us as a nation. It does hide a story, I think, about how the community feels about climate change, and there's a reason why a number of independents are standing on climate change, why we're seeing climate change come back into a national um, debate around the, the upcoming federal election. But for a country that could have dealt with climate change, I looked back at speeches that um, I gave in 2007 working for an insurance company that was identifying climate change as one of the biggest problems we faced. We used the language back then of urgency in 2007. Mm. 2007, the largest insurance company in this country said, mm. if we didn't solve for climate change, um, that was a major urgent matter for, for this country. And that's now, we're now um, 14 years later. So it's no longer just uh, um, urgent, it's as uh, Greta Thunberg has said, the house is on fire and what are we doing? And so though it, I can't answer it any other way than to say on, the, on two of the most important goals that would see us have a sustainable world for, for future generations, mm -hmm. uncompromised inequality and climate change, we have got to get our skates on um, mm -hmm. if we're to get anywhere near on track. Well, uh, thanks to you all for a really lively discussion. Thanks very much to our speakers. Uh, we'll be around here for a few more minutes if you'd like to chat. Uh, and we look forward to the next Sydney Ideas. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.